Good morning to you. Twitter has a number of thoughts regarding running. Kent Graham tweets, I hate it when I'm running on the treadmill for a half an hour and look down and realize it's just been four minutes. <laughs> Kevin Fazard tweets, I'm sorry if I don't wave or smile back to you when I'm running. I'm trying very hard not to die. Josh Gondelman tweets, I like all the things about running that aren't running. Eating carbs, comfortable footwear, being cheered. Angela probably speaks for many with her tweet, tomorrow I'm definitely going to start running, no matter how many days it takes. Today we're in the section of 1 Corinthians where Paul is answering the congregation's questions regarding food sacrifice to idols. And, and it's a crucial question because saints uh, who understood their liberty ate whatever was set before them because they knew that an idol has no real existence for there is no God but one. However, there were less well-discipled saints and they were confused based on their prior paganism and their former worship of these idols. And so they would eat these meals in violation of their conscience because to them it was though they were still worshiping those deities. And so Paul tells us in chapter 8 and verse 7 that not all possess this knowledge that idols are nothing. But some, through former association with idolatry, eat food as though it's really offered to that idol. And their conscience, being weak, that is not yet informed by the Word of God, is defiled. But food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. In chapters 8 through 11, the somewhat foreign discussion of food sacrifice to idols doesn't seem to resonate to our ears. But, but the Holy Spirit is going to bless God's eternal church through this subject to give us some timeless teachings that are vital on a subject that pertains to us all. And that is when rights are left. This is our third sermon in that subject, when rights are left. That is, as Christians, the Bible says we have tremendous liberties. But sometimes we need to curtail those liberties so that others might better walk with Jesus. In chapter 9, Paul applied this extensively to his own life and ministry. Uh, he said he had the right to financial support as a gospel minister, indeed as an apostle. And yet he consistently decided to waive that right so that others might be made brothers and sisters. And, and last time you and I were together, we looked at how we each need to be willing to be all things to all people that we might win some. That is, instead of doing what's comfortable for us, we ought to connect with others in a way that's best for them. We ought to be, in the best sense, chameleons for Christ. Now today, in our continuing discussion of when rights are left, we're in the final four verses of 1 Corinthians chapter 9. And Paul's going to make a single point quite pointedly. And it is this. Christian, are you running to win? Christian, are you running to win? And so as you turn with me in the Word of the Lord to 1 Corinthians 9 and verse 24, let's turn in the, for our hearts to the Lord Jesus and ask Him to bless our time together today. If you're looking for 1 Corinthians 9 and you don't have a Bible of your own, you can reach out and grab the Blue Pew Bible. It should be on page 12. 16. So let's turn our hearts to Jesus. Father, we invite you today to help us reorient our priorities, to rethink. Lord, we ask that you would help us to renew our mind, that we would be transformed in our worldview because of the Word that is in our purview. That you might help us in this slender section of Scripture to have a refocus, a kingdom focus, that we might seek first your kingdom and all these other things will fall into place. We know that is biblically true, but we know that that is practically elusive. 
And so we pray today in this short Scripture that you might implant a seed in our heart that grows into an oak of righteousness in our lives. That you might plant a stake that when the wind and waves of life come, we would be found faithful, fruitful, and productive for your glory and our neighbor's good. We ask these things in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen and amen. The Word of God says in 1 Corinthians 9, beginning at verse 24, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you might obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. Now they do it to receive a, a perishable wreath. But we an imperishable. So I don't run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. But I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Paul has just been speaking regarding our need to, to contextualize our lives to better convey the gospel to others. And since Paul is writing to the church at Corinth, Paul contextualizes his discussion using a metaphor that the Corinthians would readily connect with. Corinth was famous for holding the biennial Isthmian Games. It was the second most important sporting event in all of the Greco-Roman world. And, and so Paul intentionally invokes a sports analogy because he's preaching to a sporting city. And he picks two of the sports that are specifically within the Isthmian Games. He picks the sports of boxing later in our passage and running where he starts our passage. And that brings us to point one in your outlines today. So you should have a fold-out in your bulletin, and there's a number of points and blanks we'll go through. The first point today is this. We must understand the difference between running around and running to win. There is a big difference between running around and running to win. Over and over, the Bible tells us we are in a race. And here it tells us so we ought to run to win. Over in Galatians, when the Galatians were tempted to add legalism to the gospel of grace, Paul writes in Galatians 5 and verse 7, you were running a good race. Who cut on, in on you so that you no longer obey the truth? In the Old Testament, the prophet Isaiah wrote, But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up wings like eagles, and they shall run and not grow weary. The writer of Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 12, says, Therefore, since we're surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Paul, in his very last letter ever, sums up, his life and ministry like this in 2 Timothy 4, 6. He says, For I am already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, and here it is, I have finished the race. I have kept the faith, and henceforth is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day, the day when believers are rewarded. And not only to me, but to all who love His appearing. You see, Paul lived his life in light of eternity, didn't he? He refashioned everything that was important to him. Uh, his, his former life, he was esteemed in Jewish circles, and, and he threw all of that away. He lived his life in light of eternity, believing that God exists and that He rewards those who earnestly seek Him. Is that not what the book of Hebrews defines faith as? Believing that God exists 
And that He rewards those who earnestly seek Him. And so Paul's declaration is going to raise a question. And the declaration is this. Do you not know that in a race, all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? Now here's this question. Christian, are you running to win? Or are you just running around? Sadly, many saints, we fill our days with the trivial. We're busy, but we're not kingdom productive. We're haggard, we're weary, we're always in a hurry, but are we strategic in our focus? Are we intentional in our actions for Christ and His kingdom? We exhaustingly live our lives. But too often we are tragically ineffective and unproductive in the purpose of our lives as subjects of the King of Kings. You see, instead of being fruitful and productive, it's really easy to become forgetful about the Gospel and Jesus in our daily living. Instead of asking for, for, uh, for the Lord to teach us to number our days as Moses enjoins us, that we may gain a heart of wisdom in how we spend those days, we easily live our days as though we will be around forever. And so we can get around to building the kingdom when the geraniums are planted and the garage is repainted. Friends, God's Word to us is for us to put the locus of our focus back on Jesus. The Bible says we ought to fix our eyes on Jesus. It's on the sign when you come to Calvary Church. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. And when we fix our eyes on Jesus, what do we see? We see Jesus urging us to seek first His kingdom and His righteousness and all these other things will sort themselves out. Now to do that, we need to understand that there is a seismic difference between running around and running to win. Which brings us to point two today. Point two is this. We must run so as to win the prize. The Bible is very clear. You ought to run so as to win the prize. Verse 24. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Everybody runs, but not everybody wins. Right now, you are running. But are you winning? in the way Jesus wants you to win. So, so let's stop for a second. What is this prize? What is this prize Paul is urging the Christian to run to win? And that brings us to point three. And it's a really important distinction within that point. We must understand the difference between a gift and a prize. So you can misread this passage and make it into a works-based salvation. Paul's not talking about salvation. Paul wants us to understand the difference between a gift which he teaches about elsewhere, and a prize that he's speaking of right here. Notice there is a promised reward for a runner who wins. Verse 24, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? Now listen carefully. A prize is not a gift, is it? A gift is received, but a prize is earned. The Bible's making a distinction, and please don't miss it. Friends, you need to understand that salvation is a gift. It's something that you receive through faith in Jesus. You put your faith in Jesus, and you receive salvation. Jesus teaches it. Paul teaches it. The Bible teaches salvation is only as a gift. In John 4.10, in John 4.10, Jesus said to the Samaritan woman at the well, if you knew the gift of God. 
And who it is who's saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked Him and He would have given you living water. Jesus, in explaining salvation to this woman who's under condemnation, He speaks of salvation as a gift that she needs to receive. God is freely giving us something. As we come to Christmas and we look at Easter, that something ought to be quite clear. Jesus tells us in John chapter 3, For God so loved the world, He gave His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Romans 3 tells us of a righteousness from God that we are justified by grace as a gift. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. Friends, salvation is a gift. Salvation comes through Jesus. You receive salvation by trusting in Jesus, by having faith in Jesus. There's no other way. There's no other name by which you may be saved. Romans 6 says the wages of sin is death. We earn our way astray. But the Bible says the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. Ephesians 2 could not be clearer on this matter. For by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift from God. It is not a result of works. So that no one can boast. But our passage makes no mention of a gift. It speaks of a prize. Now, prizes are earned. Our passage today is speaking of heavenly rewards for faithful service to Jesus. It is not a passage speaking about heavenly citizenship that we receive as a gift. So please understand those differences, or this will be a confusing passage for you. Listen in again. Our passage today is telling us we are urged to run away so that we win a prize because there is a special reward for believers who are especially faithful. There's a special reward for the specially faithful. Listen in again to verse 24. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you might obtain it. This is what scholars refer to as one of the five crowns bestowed on believers mentioned in the New Testament. There are five crowns spoken of something that believers can receive. Uh, There's the crown of life. The crown of life is mentioned in James 1.12 and Revelation 2.10. James 1.12 explains who receives this crown, the crown of life. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who receive him. So those who bear under great trials, there is this crown bestowed upon them. Revelation 2.10 seems to be speaking of the same crown. It says about the crown of life, do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, and you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and you will receive the crown of life. Now the Bible also speaks of the crown of righteousness which seems to be rewarded to believers who who faithfully are longing for the return of Jesus. Not all believers are are really longing for the return of Jesus. They're, they're, They're kind of belonging to the world that Jesus is going to redeem. But some saints are really longing for their Lord's return. And 2 Timothy uh, excuse me, uh, uh, 2 Timothy 4.8 speaks of those saints and the crown of righteousness. For I'm already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I've fought the good faith, I've finished the race, I have kept the faith, and henceforth is laid up for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also on all who have loved His appearing. And there's also the crown of glory, which seems to be awarded to very faithful shepherds who serve Jesus with the right kind of motives. 
The Bible speaks of this in 1 Peter 5. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder to shepherd the flock of God that's among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you to do. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering those under your charge, but being an example to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. And then there's the crown of rejoicing mentioned in Scripture. And this, the crown of rejoicing seems to be something given to believers who are especially faithful in evangelism and in seeing souls saved. Now this crown is hinted at in the Old Testament in Proverbs 11.30 when it says, he who wins souls is wise. But it's much more specific in 1 Thessalonians 2.19 and Philippians 4.1. In 1 Thessalonians 2.19, Paul's confidence in this crown for winning souls is clear. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus in His coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and our joy. That he sees that his work in bringing them to faith has resulted in a crown of boasting. In Philippians 4.1, Therefore, my brothers whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Paul sees those he's won for Christ in different places as a crown of some kind of boasting. But here in 1 Corinthians 9, we have what scholars call the victor's crown. Sometimes it's called the incorruptible crown. In our version of Scripture, it's called the imperishable crown. And it is a crown that is bestowed on those who exercise persevering self-control that is a dogged kind of self-denial in their pursuit of the glory of God. Listen to our verse again. We'll start in verse 24. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you might obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath. We'll talk about that in just a moment. But we, an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. But I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself might be disqualified from receiving this crown. Not salvation, but this crown. And we'll talk about that in a moment. I want you to see that the Bible is inviting you. The Holy Spirit of the living God has a blessing. He wants you to be possessing, but you have to choose that you're going to reach for it. He wants you to receive this crown. How do we earn it? Well, by, by disciplining our bodies and keeping it under control. By having the same devotion as an Olympic athlete who curtails their diet and their activities. Why? So they can win the event, the race that they're competing in. Believers who consistently exercise self-control shall be rewarded by the King of Kings with an imperishable crown. Now ultimately, do you know what we do with these crowns, it seems like, in Scripture? We don't just get these crowns and hoard them. There's, there's a scripture where it seems like there's a point where we come to Jesus with whatever crown He's given us for faithfulness, and what do we do? We, we seem to lay it down at His feet. I hope that I have something to lay at the feet of my Jesus one day. In Revelation 4.10, the Bible says the 24 elders fall down before Jesus who's seated at the throne and they worship Him who lives forever and ever and they cast their crowns before the throne of Jesus, and here's what they say, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will all things existed and were created. And so we sing, don't we? Crown Him with many crowns. The Lamb upon His throne. Hark how the heavenly anthem drowns all music but its own. Awake my soul and sing to Him who died for me and hail Him as Thy matchless King throughout 
all eternity. You see, Revelation 19 speaks of Jesus in in the fullness of His majesty and power. Uh, we, We only get veiled glimpses of that in this broken world, but there's coming a day when He shows the fullness of His majesty and power and His glory, and we're going to see that in His second coming. And in that, it speaks of the many crowns the worthy one worthily wears. The Bible says in Revelation 19.11, I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider was called Faithful and True, and with justice he judges and makes war, and his eyes are like a blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. And so if we're going to have a crown to lay at the feet of Jesus, then we must store point four in our hearts and we must start living it out in our days. Point four is this. We must understand that running to win means increasingly learning self-control and consistently practicing self-denial. We must understand that running to win means that we increasingly learn self-control and consistently practice self-denial. Is this a hard teaching? Are we wired? Do do we like self-control? We like for others to be controlled. We'd like to give ourselves liberty. We'd like to inconsistently practice self-denial. Like occasionally, Easter, Christmas, when Mother is here. We must understand that running to win means increasingly learning self-control and consistently Practicing self-denial. It's unavoidable in our passage. Look at verse 25. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I don't run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. But I discipline my body and I keep it under control, lest after preaching to others I might be disqualified. If you listen to the news cycle on any channel, from any perspective, I think most people will admit that in 2019 the world seems a little bit out of control. But the Bible says the believer who yields himself to the work of the Holy Spirit will live a life of self-control, even in a world that's out of control. Galatians 5.22 is clear that while uh, forbidden fruit produces wanton living, uh, the fruit of the Spirit is this. It's love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and... That's right. The least talked about fruit of the Spirit. Those who belong to Christ Jesus, the Bible says, have crucified the sinful nature, and its passions and desires. How? By letting the Holy Spirit help us live like Christ. Lives of self-control in a world that's out of control. That brings us to point five. You ready? Point five is this. We must understand the certainty of eternity and prioritize the truly valuable over the pull of the temporal and the futile in how we run our race. Now that's a mouthful. Let's walk through that again. We must understand the certainty of eternity because this world seems so, so real. My boss seems so real. Monday seems so real. As a Christian, as a heavenly citizen, as a subject of an eternal king, I must understand the certainty of eternity. There is a payday one day, someday, and I need to work on it today. We must understand the certainty of eternity, which means we must prioritize the truly valuable over the pull of of the temporal, that's the now, and the futile, that's the the, the better, the good, but not the best in how we run our race. Verse 24, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, and only one receives the prize, so run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath. But we, 
and imperishable. At the Isthmian Games, the winner wore a chaplet of leaves. You ever seen a chaplet of leaves? You know, it's like this, it's like this little crown of, 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 of ivy or other things, of, of leaves. In the Isthmian Games, at various times, it was a wreath of parsley or pine or ivy. But it was, it was very coveted. You wanted to have this crown. Now, what happens if you make a wreath of ivy or parsley or pine? Yeah, it died the minute it was pruned. And it begins to continue its decay until one day, what's that moldy, nasty thing on your head of the past achievement no one cares about? You know, I think there's a song by uh, one of New Jersey's own poets about glory days. And Al Bundy wanted to go back to high school and relive his football records. Well, these people, they do all they do to receive a perishable wreath, but we receive an imperishable crown. Bible scholars tell us that from very early history, chaplets of leaves were bestowed upon heroes who conquered in the field of battle. And thus, it gives new impetus to the psalmist. In Psalm 132 and verse 18, the triumphant Messiah, we are told this, upon himself his crown shall flourish. See, upon Messiah, his crown is not just going to be temporarily impressive, it's going to be eternally flourishing. Which means that the crown of thorns that was laid on Christ's head, what was a mockery of the wreath of triumph, the eternal flourishing wreath that belongs on the head of Jesus. The idea of, of, of your crown flourishing is very expressive terminology. And yet, the better crown Paul speaks of is this incorruptible, imperishable crown. So do you not know that in a race all the runners run and only one receives the prize? So run that you might obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive this perishable, rotting wreath. But we, an imperishable crown. Now what's going to motivate a person to forego momentary certain pleasure in which most folks treasure? And the answer is, you got to treasure something greater. Or you won't forego the momentary pleasure of the now. In Matthew 13, Jesus spoke of the kingdom of God just like this, didn't he? He said, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. And when he found one of great value, he, he went away and he sold everything he had. Everything that mattered, he liquidated so that he could possess that which he could never otherwise have. And this is what motivated our Lord Jesus to endure the cross. In Hebrews 12, the Bible says, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him, doesn't that sound odd, given he, speaking of the cross? For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart in your race. Friends, the Bible says there's pleasure in sin for a season. It's right, isn't it? It is. But in the end, the Bible says there's a price that it leads to death. Which is why we must understand the, the certainty of eternity and prioritize the truly valuable against the pull of the temporal and the futile as we run our race. I want you to consider the walk of Moses in this. Moses gave up the palace and the golden chalice so that he could see the hand of God redeemed the people of God for the glory of God. He gave up the palace and the chalice so he could see the hand of God redeem the people of God for the glory of God. You want to miss God's best in your life? 
Hebrews 11 says this, By faith, Moses, when he was born, he was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw this child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. And by faith, Moses, when he was grown up, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ of greater wealth than all the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking forward to a greater reward. That brings us to point six in all this. We must run our race purposefully, not aimlessly. We must run our race purposefully, not aimlessly. Do you not know, verse 24, that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control, They do it for a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Now here it is, verse 26. So do not run aimlessly. Do you run purposefully or do you run aimlessly? Do you live your life with a burning passion, a glorious purpose, or are you sort of aimless and rudderless and it's just Tuesday and you're just trying to get through Tuesday and... Let your head hit the pillow in tomorrow's Wednesday. Is your main mission to know Jesus and to make Him known? Is it your daily ambition to love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your mind and all your soul and all your strength? Or do, uh, do, do you do this uh, tangibly and beautifully? By what? By loving your neighbor as you love yourself. Or are we remiss in all this? Have we become what the Bible would say is aimless in our existence? You know, do we gaze at the same old, same old on Netflix and then graze at the same restaurants and haunts and we're bored out of our gourds when we ought to be living purposefully? But instead, we've succumbed to living aimlessly. The life of an on-mission Christian is many things, but I've never heard it said it's boring. If you're bored, come talk to Uncle Wayne. Come talk to myself. Let's take you off of the benches and into the trenches. There are many things you can do for Christ in His kingdom at Calvary. There's many things you can do around the world for Christ. There are many things you can do with many of our ministry partners for Christ. You ought not be bored out of your gourd. You ought to be burdened with glorious purpose for Jesus. Which one is true for you? Now, some of you are saying, well, Sean, I'm engaged in various ministries. Fantastic. I got a question for you though. Are you doing it with all of your heart as unto the Lord? Or have we become kingdom complacent where we sort of just go through the motions because it's our Sunday to be in that ministry? So you can be in ministry and do it not willingly and cheerfully and joyously. You can do it as a drudgery out of compulsion. And that's not worship, it's just activity. And that brings us to point seven today. We must fight the good fight, seeking to land our blows and not just do it all for show. We must fight the good fight, Christian, and seek to land our blows, not just doing it all for show. Uh, He says, do you not know that in a race all the runners run and only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. And every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable, so I don't run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. You've seen shadow boxers, right? And it's, everyone looks like the heavyweight champion when there's no, nobody else in the ring, right? You look very good, preening. But friends, I want you to notice the Apostle Paul struck real blows at a real foe. He faced a real adversary. Paul's Christianity was purposeful even as it was forceful. The commentator Leon Morris notes, Paul put everything into a direct and forceful Christian endeavor for his entire life so that when it's over he could say, I've been poured out like a drink offering. There's nothing left. There's a perfume in a room and a stain that he came and there's nothing left. He left it all on the altar for Jesus Christ. Is that true of us in our service 
for Jesus. Because if you show me any time in, in church history, in the 2,000 years that we have a recorded church from Pentecost to today, if you show me any time God's people left an indelible mark in the world for the cause of Christ, I'm going to show you saints who were all in for Jesus Christ. Every time. That is a truism. Uh, the early missionaries went to Africa and, 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 and I'm told by many historical sources that the early missionaries sent their goods in coffins because they were going to die to share Christ. Because of the malaria and the tribal warfare and all of these things, they did not go thinking, well, I'll come back. They went thinking, I'm going to give this one life for Jesus Christ. And, and, and these were not perfect people. If you read their biographies and stories, they didn't always have their doctrine perfect. They didn't have their Christian living perfect. They didn't get along with each other perfectly. But for all of their flaws, there was an all-in mentality for Christ and His kingdom. And it left an indelible mark for Jesus in the places that they touched down for Jesus. Uh, this kind of desire prompted very imperfect people like C.T. Studd to give their lives for the cause of Christ. Uh, he abandoned a, a promising career as a professional cricketer who would like, be like being a professional baseball player. Uh, he gave away his inherited family fortune. Dad was rich. He gave it all away. And he died sharing Christ in the Belgian Congo. And along the way, he wrote this. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. And when I am dying, how happy I'll be if the lamp of my life has burned out for thee. It was this kind of single-minded devotion to Christ and His kingdom that led a young man named Jim Elliot. Have you heard of Jim Elliot? Jim Elliot said things that people still stop and go, wow. Jim Elliot said things like this, Quote, forgive me for being so ordinary while claiming to know a God so extraordinary. Father, make me a crisis man. Bring those I contact to a decision. Let me not be a, a milepost on a single road. Make me a fork that men must turn one way or the other facing Christ in me. He said, I don't seek a long life, but a full one like you, Lord Jesus. He said, if we are sheep of His pasture, remember that sheep are headed for the altar. And what is probably Jim Elliot's most famous quote? Quote, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Now, it's one thing to say things like this, but it's another thing to live them. And so Jim Elliott and Ed McCulley and Roger uh, Yordian and Pete Fleming and their pilot Nate Saint, they, they all gave their lives in a tragic massacre attempting to bring the Gospel to an unreached people. And yet through their deaths, even secular society took notice. If you're old enough to remember, Time did a ten-page spread about the missionaries massacred reaching this tribe. And it motivated many people into missionary service. And the Gospel went all around the globe because of the death of these five young men. Indeed, the very tribe that killed him for coming for Christ, ultimately, many in that tribe came to Christ. And so over and against the, the, the Jim Elliots and the C.T. Studs and, and many others in the world, there is a different kind of boxer in the Christian church. There was a boxer who likes to wear his heavyweight trunks and, 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 and tape up his gloves and, and get the glory of being known as a heavyweight. But all he really wants to do is, is preen and pose and punch the air for the cameras and the cheers. He talks a good game, but he doesn't walk a good game. And that brings us to point eight. Running to win is more than just talk. It's a focused walk throughout our life. Perseverance is a hard doctrine, isn't it? It's one thing to make a cataclysmic decision for Jesus in a moment. You've, you've gone to a camp. You had a speaker. You went to Promise Keepers. And for a weekend, we're excited. And for a month, we're encouraged. And a year later, we're indifferent. And that's not what the passage is calling us to. To win this crown. Running to win is more than just talk and hype. It's a focused walk throughout our life. I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. But I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others I should find myself 
disqualified. And some saints talk more about ministry than they engage in ministry. They speak more about reaching the lost than they do building bridges to anybody who is lost. They, they have a high view of prayer in theory, but gee, you can't find them in a prayer meeting in actuality. Friends, if the gospel is going to advance over this present darkness, then the Bible says we're going to need to be focused like athletes. We're going to need to be disciplined like soldiers, and we're going to be dedicated like, new, like mothers of a newborn. And those are not things that just go away in a day. The disciplined athlete, the disciplined soldier, the attentive mother. And all this brings us to our final point, point nine today. To earn the imperishable victor's crown, we must compete according to God's rules. See, we've made a whole set of rules of what it looks like to be an industrial strength Christian, but it may not be God's list. To, to earn the imperishable victor's crown, we must compete according to God's rules. He said, do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you might obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others I might become disqualified. Did you know that ancient athletes had very strict rules regarding their training? In my research, I'm told that Olympic athletes back in the day had to swear an oath confirming they had abstained from wine, meat, and sex for 10 months as they underwent rigorous training for their athletic event. Now, the ESV in verse 25 is going to render a certain Greek word that every athlete exercises self-control. That's how we read it in the New Testament uh, we have in front of us. But if you read it in the Greek New Testament, their New Testament, the Greek word is agonizomai. Agonizomai. And, and it's from the Greek word agonizomai that we get two words in the English. We get agony and we get to agonize. And so, when the Bible is looking to help us understand what it takes to perseveringly stand for God, there's a, there's a strict 10-month training of an athlete it draws us to as the price of admission to win the competition. And Dr. Warren Wearsby notes, an athlete must be disciplined if he's to win the prize. And discipline means giving up the good, and indeed the better, so that you can get the best. An athlete must watch his diet as well as his hours. He must smile and say no thank you when people offering him fattening desserts so they offer him to come to late night parties and events. And there's nothing wrong with food or fun, but if they interfere with your highest goal, then they are hindrances, not helps. In like manner, in Paul's letter, we learn that Paul voluntarily, perseveringly, intentionally endured physical, emotional, and financial hardships so the good ship of the gospel would rescue the perishing all around his world in his lifetime. Are we willing to do the same for Jesus' name? Paul writes, but I discipline my body and I keep it under control lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Now, you need to understand that this disqualification, he's not talking about damnation. Uh, this is a crown of reward, all right, uh, for service to Jesus. This is not a prerequisite to salvation in Jesus. Romans 8 sets us straight. Paul wrote that too. Paul says, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or sword or danger? No. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor heights nor depths nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. So Paul is not saying, I'm going to lose my salvation in this. He's saying, I might lose my reward. I might be disqualified. I might have run such a good race, and then I throw it all away. And the word disqualified is uh, a doikimenos, and it's the alpha privative of doikimenos, which means approved. So he's saying, I might not be approved with the reward. That's what he's saying. So Paul is saying, you and I can teach others how to win the victor's crown. 
We can teach them accurately and faithfully and helpfully, and we can miss it for ourselves entirely. Friends, let's not do that. Let's not do that. In the original Greek games, only Greek citizens could compete. If an athlete lost his event, he didn't lose his citizenship. He lost the reward of winning the race. You will never lose your citizenship in heaven. If you have put your faith in Jesus, you are eternally secure in Christ. But friend, there are great blessings you could be possessing that you get to keep eternally. But you have to choose how you're going to live temporally. And that starts five seconds after we say amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we look at a little simple passage like this and we can blow past it, but it is pregnant with pointed purpose. It gives us a focused direction. It ought to give us pause and cause us reflection. Oh God, keep us from defection. We pray that you would help us to run purposefully and not aimlessly. That instead of being bored out of our gourd and going through the same old, same old, that we might be burdened with glorious purpose. You have gifted each of us, you tell us in Scripture, with at least one spiritual gift, and you have fashioned us for such a time as this in our places for some kingdom purpose. You call us living stones. There isn't a single brick that is sitting on the side unuseful. It's supposed to be somewhere interlocking with another, providing shelter and coverage and strength to the others. And so, Lord, we ask that you would help us this week to not run aimlessly. To let us no longer shadow box, but let us start landing some real blows because there's a real foe. And though the gates of hell shall assault your church, it will not overcome it because of the promise and power of Jesus over it. Lord, we live in an undisciplined age that finds new ways to justify what it craves so we pray that you'd help us more tomorrow than yesterday to discipline our bodies to keep it under control. Give us the audacity to live past mundanity. Make us a peculiar people with a peculiar focus. The glory of Jesus that we might see the advance of Christ and His kingdom among us. And that others who would be otherwise left out might be brought in. That we might leave our rights, that others would not be left out. That we might fulfill all that you have in store for each of us. We ask this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.